Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's mad as hell and isn't going to take it anymore. And also, I vote. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Rebecca Traster, a fantastic writer for New York Magazine, one of my favorites, and The Cut. She's also the author of a new book called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca, this is a very good day to talk. Very good day, very bad day. day. Welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your book and your background, but I, and, and I do want to get into today. This is just a disturbing day for the media and others, and there's a lot of rage going around. And obviously, these pipe bombs are being found all over the place, mm-hmm. aimed at Democrats, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a president and responding, the and the media, and the yeah. president responding saying it's their fault mm-hmm. or that they did it to themselves and things like that. And so it's a really—I'm really kind of irritated right now. I'm particularly irritated, and also because it's all—it falls into this stuff. But let's talk a little bit about your background, how you got to this. I like to know what people have done and how they get places. So tell, give, give us a little bit of your background of how you got to this topic and writing in general. Well, you know, I didn't have any particular grand plan to become a journalist. It always felt like a very glamorous career. I grew up mm-hmm. the daughter of academics, and the idea of, like, writing something and putting my name on it and getting paid for it was basically the equivalent of, like, being a movie star. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I didn't—and I didn't go to journalism school. I went to Northwestern, which has an incredible yes, journalism does. school. Medill, yeah. But um, I did not go to Medill. I got a degree in American studies. I studied literature. Mm-hmm. And then when I came to New York after college, I actually worked— for my my first job was for an actor as an assistant. I didn't. I thought maybe I would work in the movies. <laughs> How'd that go? It, it was it was a personal assistant job. Yeah, yeah, I got that. <laughs> um, there was a lot of coffee and a lot of delivered expensive sushi and mm-hmm. you know some crazy travel with famous mm-hmm. people. Right. And then in my mid twenties, I got a job as a an assistant at a magazine that was being edited by Tina Brown and that mm-hmm. was being funded by Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah. Uh, Talk Magazine. Talk Magazine. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Um, and I was a secretary there. I was the uh-huh. secretary to that the, must have been to the a number ride. two editor. It was. I was there almost my entire tenure there was before it launched. Um, oh, wow. I quit very quickly after the first issue. So right. it was like a year of preparing to publish a magazine. That must have been a hot mess. It, oh. Hot mess <laughs> is how I would. <laughs> oh, my God. I met a lot of really good friends there. And yeah. and I actually that's where I met journalists who are, mm-hmm. you know, the the young writers and editors who mm-hmm. who work there, so talented. And they encouraged me to think about becoming a journalist myself right. and help me to get a job as a fact checker and a reporter at the New York Observer, which is a mm-hmm. weekly newspaper. And when I was there, I was taught sort of the very, like, nuts and bolts of how to be a reporter. And I was put on all kinds of beats that I didn't much care about, real estate mm-hmm. sales and the gossip column and 
But I learned how to meet a deadline and how to write a lead right. and, you know. Right. But, and, and I always had feminist politics. You know, I grew up in a, in a home that was political. My father came from a super left New York family. You know, his relatives had been party leaders in the mid-20th century. And, <laughs> and then and my mom came from a Republican household, but it turned left. So I always had left politics. And they were, I was particularly interested as a student in various kinds of inequality, gender inequality, racial inequality, mm -hmm. um, and how they shaped and literature justice, yeah. and social justice, but it wasn't quite, I wasn't an activist. I don't mm -hmm. I don't know, quite know how to describe right. it. Like on campus, I never took part in like a take back the night march, which mm -hmm. was, which was happening right. a little bit right. on my campus uh, in the nineties. I was not an activist by any stretch of the imagination. I often wonder if I could go back and ask myself, I knew no one called themselves a feminist. Like mm -hmm. I was in a million classrooms where people would, you know, make an observation that began with, I'm not a feminist, but, but like, it was deep anti-feminist backlash time. Right. I wish I could go back and mm -hmm. actually know the answer to the question of would I have called myself a feminist then? Like it just mm -hmm. didn't, right. I don't know whether I would didn't have. you object to those. No, I didn't. I wasn't. I was qualifiers. feminist in my curiosity and in how I read the literature mm -hmm. that I was studying and how I, but I don't know how, I was just not an mm -hmm. activist feminist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. But I had, you know, curiosities and about gender, but I couldn't have imagined making it right. a career. Right. And then I got a job at Salon, mm -hmm. um, the online yes. magazine, mm -hmm. and it was writing a sort of squishy section about women's stuff, like sex or, um, you know, education. Um, it, it could have been anything, just sort of the what used to be called the Mothers Who Think column. And I started to write from a sort of rudimentary feminist point of view. Mm -hmm. And this was in 2003, 2004. And those pieces started to get readers, which then made, there was an incentive for my bosses to have me keep writing from a feminist perspective. So mm -hmm. I got to develop a beat and I became a feminist journalist. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the- so, Were you following in anyone's footsteps? I mean, Gloria Steinem was a feminist journalist. She yeah. remember the Playboy Absolutely. Piece. There had been, there had been a very robust feminist media um, mm -hmm. through the 70s. And there had been, you know, so Katha Pollitt was yes. writing feminism- in the nation throughout that mm -hmm. deep backlash period where basically mm -hmm. there wasn't anybody else. Um, mm -hmm. Ellen Goodman, to a certain right. extent. But she was cute. Anna Quinlan. You know, mm -hmm. there was, but it wasn't, this. that stuff wasn't, except for Katha, who was like super right. feminist. In mainstream press, there wasn't like a politicized feminism. As it had been before. As it had been before. Right. Through the, you know, through, through the 80s magazine and 90s, and, that had yeah. sort of disappeared. The notion of a feminist media that is now, I mean, for anybody listening now, they're like, yeah, sure, there's a feminist media. There's a feminist blogosphere. There's mm -hmm. a feminist, you right. know, that was Yeah, there non was one, and then there wasn't one. And, and then there wasn't one for a long time. And so this was a period in which... Well, it actually was very similar to happening to gay publications. There wasn't, yes. there was a whole bunch of gay public, like Advocate and everything else, because there was nowhere to go. And then the mainstream media subsumed all that stuff. So it was present, in, but not heavily present. Right. And there was a feminism on the margins. There was mm -hmm. a zine culture. There was a music culture, riot mm -hmm. girl feminism. Mm -hmm. But it was not anywhere near a mainstream right. set of media or or pop culture for a long right, time. Right, But about the time that I started sort of experimenting, writing basically pop culture criticism from a feminist perspective, um, there were other people other journalists my age, I think there was that sense. It was like a, a generation that hadn't lived through the post-movement mm -hmm. vilification mm -hmm. of whatever disruptions you'd made, right, right? right? And it was like there was a sort of hunger to like, wait, can we go back to talking about this now? Right. And that was happening. I was doing it, but there were also, you know, dozens of other people doing it. Mm -hmm. um, some of them coming out of activist spheres, out of, you know, electorate, like out of the Dean campaign and the Netroot stuff in mm -hmm. 2004 mm -hmm. came a lot of women who were right. irritated by gender politics on the left. So that is sort of the moment that the feminist blogosphere, as it was then called, sort right. of blossomed. Right. And so, and, and that, those were the years during which I first started 
developing my beat. And, um, you know, it was a lot of pop culture criticism. Mm -hmm. And then, you know— What were you aiming to do? What was the goal for you? Um, I wish that I had had a cogent sort of vision of what I was trying to do. I was really—I felt it was exhilarating Mm -hmm. because it was like I could look— it was a great freedom of getting to make my own beat and getting right. to decide what I got to write about and then mm-hmm. and then considering it through a feminist lens. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, especially at the beginning, I hadn't been schooled in any of this stuff. Sure. I actually hadn't taken women's studies classes. Right. I didn't know much about social history in the United States. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that I wrote then was quite blinkered um, mm-hmm. with regards <laughs> to gender and race and what class. What do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, yeah, I just, it was very rudimentary stuff. Mm-hmm. It didn't take, there was no, there was no history. There was no texture. It mm-hmm. was kind of like, you know, well, this seems sexist. I mean, I don't mean to. Some of it was smart, right? No, I, I was. I'm not. You know, no, you're I'm not a stupid person, person. But like, but it was <laughs> totally unschooled. It had none of what I aim to do now as a, you know, 15 years later, uh-huh. which is trying to tell a bigger that story. That seems sexist, right? No, <laughs> seriously, that was a lot of what Pantyhose. it was. But, <laughs> right? But high heels. What's up with that? It was like the Seinfeld <laughs> routine of of feminism. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was very. There was wasn't a sense of this stuff that had come before. Yeah. For example, you say, oh, well, Gloria Steinem was doing this this kind of stuff. This is what Ms. Magazine was. Well, mm-hmm. I hadn't at that yeah. point, I mean, I knew what Ms. Magazine was, but mm-hmm. I didn't, I hadn't read those stories. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens, and this is not within lots of social movements mm-hmm. that sort of get pushed back in a backlash mm-hmm. and then get revivified by another generation, mm-hmm. the generation that before emerges no information. doesn't know that the people have been there 30 right. years before. But yeah. that's, and I think that's okay, by the way. And right. I think there are frustrations. There's all, that's part of what right. leads to generational frustration. But by the way, that's, it also, like you, there's a certain exhilaration in think you're, thinking you're discovering something for the first time that can hook right. you into these ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't necessarily come into these things wanting to say like, well, my foremothers <laughs> were writing these exact same <laughs> sentences. Um, and let's go all the way back to, like, uh, the Declaration of Sentiments, perhaps. Yes, well, no. That was and, a pretty good document. Right, and in fact, in this the book that I just published, one of the most moving pieces of journalism that I came across was one by Vivian Gornick, the brilliant writer and essayist. And she was writing in the 1990s, looking back at having been part of that second mm-hmm. wave mm-hmm. in the 1970s, and talking about the exhilaration that she felt reading mm-hmm. some of the suffragists oh, yeah. and abolitionists when she was a young feminist in the 70s and thinking, oh, my God, these people, you know, they're saying what we were saying 100 <laughs> years ago. And she writes about how it was thrilling, but that it wasn't yet sobering and that it should yeah. have been sobering. And, right. of course, the reason it should have been sobering is because it was like, wait, if people were saying this 100 years ago and, and, things and we're changed. still saying it today, then yeah. something happened in those intervening right. 100 years where we right. didn't get to the promised land. Right, exactly. Right? Absolutely. Um, no, they were quite woke back then. Yeah. Well, about something. I mean, they're yeah. very, very racist. Yeah, very. 100%. Yeah, yeah. In ways that we're still, I mean, those are the long-term um, issues, absolutely, between women, uh, people of color and uh, Right, the inequities color. that have marked really every Right. progressive coalition right. and that are very, you know, damaging to Me them. Me too, everything. Everything. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, that was the, the early, the early work was very much just a thrill at getting to like, mm-hmm. honestly, and a lot of it was this pop culture stuff. A lot of it was like, 
you know, Britney Spears cut all her hair off and it's a tabloid story. Mm. But wait a minute. I think this actually has just, you know. Bigger repercussions. Bigger, well, yeah. And there's something about a pattern around gender and power and remaking oneself and the power to control your own image. I don't even remember what I wrote about that. Mm-hmm. But like it was, but that was the sort of initial entry point. It's like, wait, I could look at the world through these glasses these and seeing right, it, and and see it, it in a way that yeah. I don't think is being talked about enough. And that was true. There yeah. was really kind of a desert right. out there. Right. Um, now, of course, that sort of let's look at this from a gendered perspective mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. perspective that takes into account mm-hmm. inequalities. We there's much more of that all yes. around us. All, it doesn't feel, in fact it's 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 woven through stuff. Too. Exactly, exactly. Right. But that wasn't really true right. 15 years ago. So the the book. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a perfect storm, and it's mm-hmm. a terrible storm right now of, of anger and rage, and which had been building, which, yeah. which happens. It happened in the seventies too. It happened back in yeah. Well, this is Elizabeth Cady Stanton's time. It has to build to a boiling point, and when mm-hmm. it, especially when it comes, the book is about women's anger about all kinds of injustice, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about women who exploded with anger over racial injustice and violence and how their anger, in fact, was catalytic to a civil rights movement, right. to the abolition movement, to the gay rights movement. But when it comes specifically to women's anger at gender inequality, there's a specific structural thing that makes it hard and makes it one of the reasons it only mm-hmm. happens sort of every 50 or 60 years. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to get anger, angry about gendered inequality, part of what you're... Because women are a majority population, a, an oppressed majority... <laughs> which is right. a rare and, and delicate right. thing. Right. It means that every woman has men in her life and every man has women right. in his life. Right. And that means that the people you're identifying as your oppressors mm-hmm. are the people with whom you have some of your most intimate relationships, right. familial, right. your fathers, your right. brothers, your friends, your, your right. in many cases, your your lovers or your, mm-hmm. your partners, mm-hmm. um, your sons. And the, that intimacy and the fact that to challenge the power dynamic in those relationships means disturbing the nature of Absolutely. those relationships makes it an incredibly heavy lift and mm-hmm. hard to get a mass number of women angry enough that mm-hmm. they're willing to sort of wreak that havoc on right. their personal and their professional and therefore I their get economic it. I lives. have two sons. Right. So it's... I am always saying like, oh, mediocre man. And, I'm, and my son's <laughs> like, that's sexist. I'm like, yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> right. This is the... Right. One of the things I hear all yeah. the time. Yeah is my sons you yeah. know in yeah. in all kind from all kinds yeah. of angles this right. is this is hard hard emotional work to bring a social justice movement into your own family. No, absolutely. I'm always like, not you, but the rest of them. Right, right. (laughs) And then you're like, but you? I mean, I don't, like, what is, what, and me, and what is my role here, and and what is, you Yeah, I'm often saying, I go, I go, I I sometimes say all men, and then I go, and my sons go, it's not all men. And I'm I'm like, of course it's not. You know, you say it off the top of your head, and I go, Many men, and and then I have to correct myself. I go most, and then right. it's like, and then I'm like, oh, you know, and then it's fascinating to think about. It. So it led to the to book, and we're going to get into more details of what it was in doing this. You thought it deserved more. Well, it was like that initial lens that I had that I could look at the world and think about it with you know with regard to gendered inequality. Right. There was a kind of revelation that I had between the 2016 election and the beginning of 2017 that was like, oh my god, anger. Mm-hmm. Wait, I knew anger had always undergirded. Like, I wouldn't have written about this stuff if I hadn't been angry about the inequalities. Right. But I was like, I'd never thought of anger as a motivating factor. I think mm-hmm. in many ways women are trained to not consider their own anger, sure. to distance themselves from it, to not focus on it, to obscure it. Mm-hmm. But 
I could see it in, in the years that I've been doing this writing and learning some of the history that I'd never been taught and also looking around at the world mm-hmm. as it is and mm-hmm. what needs to happen as we move forward. I was like, wait, anger is a thread that that connects all this stuff I've been learning and thinking mm-hmm. about and reconsidering. And in fact, it's the thing we're not supposed to look directly at right. if we're women. Right. Right. And that was very, so that was the I sort agree. of motivating idea behind the, I the book. I think it's what changed the gay rights movement, anger. Really? Yeah. We had Act to, up. Yeah. They were right. Everyone was like, whoa, careful, let's get along, let's compromise. And I kept thinking, no, they're the, exactly what they ha- has to happen. The only way it's going to make changes is by being angry. It's by being angry. And they changed everything. Well, this is— it's Not the compromisers. The compromisers did not do it. it in the, the angry book, people. this is what I'm taught—I write about chaos. Mm-hmm. And that one of the fears about anger, especially from people who have less power, and therefore mm-hmm. when they challenge— you know, anger coming from the powerful to the less powerful mm. isn't chaos. That's how power works, right? right. That's police killings. That's, right. that's you know, right, that that's, that's not control. chaos. That's control. Mm-hmm. But when people who have less power challenge the power system, it becomes chaotic and scary, right? right. But ACT UP is a perfect example of that. And I write in the book about, this, about Stonewall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was also a moment— no, you say no, you, right. no more. I, I, I'm angry. I'm yeah. going to throw something. But right. if you do that and you're the person who has less power, I mean, that's how you get characterized as a mob, as right. a riot. And we're going to talk about that right. as we go mobs, not jobs. I'm, I'm literally livid right now. Right. I have yeah. to tell you yes. about so many things. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back in a minute with Rebecca Tracer. She's the author of Good and Mad. It's a new book about—I uh, don't want to use the word rage. It's, it's mm. a book about anger and women's anger. It's the revolutionary power of women's anger. We'll be back. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're here with Rebecca Traster. She is a writer. She's a fantastic writer for New York Magazine. She's written some amazing pieces in it that I read every single one of them. And she has a new book called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Why now is this happened? So you've written this book to talk about this mm-hmm. um, and what it does and, and the power of anger and what how it creates chaos and also social change. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the, the anger had been building and it had been building before the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. There was this period, the, the 80s, mm-hmm. Reagan, 
the 90s, yeah. the Clintons, the yeah. Bush, you know. I'm still mad about the Reagan administration. Just so you know. well, well, you should be because part yeah. of what happened is in the wake of those late 20th century mm-hmm. disruptive, chaotic social movements, right, mm-hmm. where people who had historically been barred from certain kinds of power staged mass movements to disrupt and change the way the systems worked. And so you had a civil rights movement, a gay rights movement, a women's movement in the 60s and 70s that changed the laws, changed the norms, changed mm-hmm. the assumptions, and dramatically in many ways, though did not fix them, altered the way that institutions worked, the way that political right. and educational and economic structures were composed and who could participate in them and who deserved protection under them, right? Mm-hmm. And that was that was an extremely chaotic period right. in the United States. And because ultimately it did not stop the United States from being a white patriarchy where, you know, power was still aligned to to white people in, in the United States and men had still a significantly higher share of it. There was a kind of retraction after that chaos. And what we call, you know, in feminism, is Susan Faludi wrote the book called Backlash, right? It was mm-hmm. the post-feminist backlash period during which part of the work of backlash and quelling that chaos mm-hmm. and stopping the disruption was in vilifying those who had caused it, right? right. Which is where you get all the bad stereotypes about angry man hating mm-hmm. sexless humorless feminists yeah yeah um you know that you know the joke i mean i hate to quote over zan bar joke but it's a good one which one she has i don't know why uh you know it's like man hating lesbians and stuff like that she goes i don't know why they think lesbians hate men they don't have to sleep with them okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one that's a good joke right. um roseanne used to be like a, she used to be funny she, she used to be and she used to be like a now she's real mad <laughs> she's so mad what is it yeah or um, something else so the other part of that is telling people that, oh, you fixed it all. We're right. post-race. We're post-feminism. Right. There's nothing left to be angry about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you're still angry about inequality, then you're borrowing, you're somehow theatrical. You're borrowing your outrage from right. another era, right? Right. And this is a myth. That America, and especially the people who have the most access to power, the white middle class that's most likely to have, contr- to be the storytellers, to control the cultural narratives, mm-hmm. um, the pop cultural narratives, the political stories, the politicians, mm-hmm. are all likely to be people who themselves are insulated from some of the effects of what was always pernicious and continuing inequality, right? Mm -hmm. And so they could tell themselves, in part to preserve their own continued power, Mm -hmm. like there's nothing left to be— Well, because they aren't being— Attacked, right? Ever. They had no idea, right? 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 And they didn't want to have. It. It's not just that they have no idea. Well, it's, it's an interesting. That you that's no, an, that's an interesting question because when you think about a lot of the stuff that's going on around Me Too, what is it, I, we cover it from Silicon Valley's perspective, right. and we had covered the Ellen Powell trial, mm-hmm. um, and we'd covered uh, Susan Fowler at mm-hmm. Uber and stuff like that. Where the, that was that manifestation mm-hmm. of it, that was this tech manifestation of it, and. I always say women had 10 stories like this, mm-hmm. everybody. And they ranged from very minor, you know, not very they're not minor. None of them are minor, like sweetie and that kind of stuff, to the very disturbing, really sexual mm-hmm. assault, essentially. And every woman had 10 stories like that mm-hmm. somewhere yeah, along sure. that continuum. And every man was surprised by it. Oh, I didn't realize. It was fascinating. That's, I had no idea. We just had such a... I thought about this a lot mm-hmm. because there was this period right before the 2016 election, this kind of the amnesia, mm-hmm. the degree to which people who don't experience it don't want to think about how ubiquitous these kinds of mm-hmm. inequities are. So right before the 2016 election, after the Access Hollywood tape, mm-hmm. there's this period that we've kind of this forgotten. That Yeah, after the release of the Access Hollywood tape, and then women coming forward with their names, the people reporter, the woman on the airplane telling mm-hmm. stories about how Trump had groped or, or assaulted them. And there was this outpouring. It was a hashtag campaign. It was, you know... It, 
millions of women telling stories. And I had conversations that fall, that month, leading up to the election in 2016, with men saying, I had no idea. You know, a senator said to me, my wife got groped on the subway. And I was like, of course she got groped on the subway. Right. We all get groped on the subway. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how is this a surprise to you? Um, uh-huh. And men saying, I had no idea. My eyes are open. I had no idea how, uh, how frequent yeah. this was. Okay. And I was like, wow, maybe men are really seeing. Mm-hmm. A year later, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein reporting, mm-hmm. there is the hashtag Me Too movement, which, of course, mm-hmm. is a later iteration of Toronto Burke's Me Too movement, um, which she founded and led in, in 2006 and on. And during that moment, I have all these conversations with men who are like, oh, my God, I had no idea right. how common this was. Yeah. And I was like, but we, d- we did just talk about this <laughs> a year ago, right? Yeah. And then this summer and fall, yeah. during... Christine Blasey Ford, when you had a whole new batch of women, many right. of them in that case, actually yep. older women, talking about what, you know, what they'd experienced in happened high school and college. Happened to everybody. Again, of course, if it, of course it happens. It happened to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I also had all these conversations with men being like, I just had no idea. And I was like, you guys, we, right. ta- we have now talked right. about this three right. times. How can you? But there is, there is an, first of all, we don't want to think about the things that are hard, which is mm-hmm. also ties into yes. the answer of how could people who don't have to be angry because they have certain comforts and privileges, right. how do they, how do they, how are they anesthetized, Right. you know, to not feel the anger, to not see the inequality? It's because it's easier. And we know from the way people talk now, like, mm-hmm. can't we just go back to when Twitter Twitter was about bad TV. Right. Like, there's a desire to go back to a point where we're not in the midst of a fight for the country's soul, mm-hmm. where we're not in the midst of a fight where we're likely to suffer horrible, depressing, terrifying defeats, where we don't have to look straight every day at the kind of violence and suffering that has always been right, right. there, but right. there were not circumstances that yes. forced us to look at it, right? right? Exactly. And But it's that desire that's so dangerous. That mm-hmm. desire, which is was natural and away. human, was to pretend things were yes. better than they were if you were a member of a class yeah. and a population fine. that could take advantage of the opportunities that had been won mm-hmm. and didn't have to look at now we what can had relax. not been won. Now we right? can relax. And that right? was the story of the 80s and the 90s. And then, of course, it sort of hit a symbolically, you know, when the election of Barack Obama, which was read by by many in a mainstream popular media as a signal that, like, see, racism was like a stage through which this country has successfully passed. We've elected mm-hmm. a black president. Well— and, and and the stories around Hillary Clinton contributed that to, to that too. Look, the the next woman president is going to be a woman. Inevitably, she might as well have been the president. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, it was all part of this decades long lie that was absorbed by the people who had the power to propagate it. Right. That we had fixed the glaring and defining inequities right. on which this country had been built. Right. And um, but there was anger that was bubbling up in resi- right. like resistant to that narrative. Underneath. So you had Occupy Wall Street, which was a f- furious demonstration Mm -hmm. um, in response to economic inequality. Black Lives Matter. You know, that comes during the Obama administration when it's when it's it's activists who are furious at the state killing of African-Americans who are and in fact, thanks to the media and the ability to show streaming video Mm -hmm. of of kids kids getting killed, getting killed that that echoes some of the way that visual media was used to show the ravages of lynching Emmett Mm -hmm. Till's body. That is part of what enables Black Lives Matter to erupt in the way that it does. And this Mm -hmm. determination, an angry determination to make those who don't want to look, look at the violence that is being enacted by the state against African-Americans all the time. And that movement becomes 
incredibly important to shaping our politics. Except that it's interesting you say that about it. When you even say, look, they don't look. Like, the vi- I, I, I have relatives, and I'm like, look at the videos. They're like, well, and I'm like, there's videos right. now. right. And you still won't accept it. Right. Well, but that's true of every— Right. I mean, one of the myths about this civil rights movement is that it had wide public support and that, mm-hmm. you know, no. It was, mm-hmm. a you know, a minority of Americans were supportive of the civil rights movement. Right. Um, in retrospect, I th- again, it's the way that we talk about Dr. Right. Martin Luther King um, in a kind of sanitized mm-hmm. way that doesn't even acknowledge the anger that, that drove him. Right. Um, you know, there's a way we want to flatter ourselves always in retrospect by talking about all the great strides we've made without talking about how, you know, a majority of Americans resisted those strides mm-hmm. um, in in the moment Absolutely. that they were happening. So, right. but there's no question that Black Lives Matter changed the nature of the discourse around politics, Absolutely. pushed politicians, many of whom, you know, if you look back at 2016, still both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were resistant to, you know, talking, being being challenged so, so, by So, so Black Lives you're talking Matter about the idea of rage being useful, mm-hmm. rage being, being yeah. useful. So when you're talking about in the context of women, women get mad, like you said, I get mad and it doesn't ever seem to push the ball forward. Well, I think... To use a terrible... I think we don't... Manly. <laughs> I think we don't often acknowledge the ways in which their anger may be politically consequential. So, for mm-hmm. example, the women, you know, who first started saying Black Lives Matter, those are the women who founded that movement, which mm-hmm. then becomes a mass protest movement that right. shapes, you know, right. not just a protest culture, but a, a football culture, right? right. Like, right. this is, you right. know, our, our industries, our businesses, our right. national right. Fair point. That's a, absolutely right? true. And I think that that's true of a lot of our history because we're discouraged from considering women's anger as politically viable and politically consequential. What we don't see, we can acknowledge Rosa Parks and Mamie Till as catalytic figures in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. but we never talk about their anger. Rosa Parks right. is brought to us as, a, as, as an a extremely sa- a tired, sweet, saintly, saintly, and stoic figure. And we, until very recently, Danielle McGuire's book, Dark End of the Street, um, was gr- helped change the national conversation about Rosa Parks, but that's a conversation that women within the civil rights movement, that Polly Murray and Gloria Richardson and and were, were anxious to have during the civil rights mm-hmm. movement, saying, wait, let's take a fuller look at Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was a lifelong, furious fighter against racial injustice. She was an investigator for the NAACP who investigated the gang rapes of black women by white men in the Jim Crow South and investigated often false claims of mm-hmm. sexual violence made right, by white did. women against that's right. black men. That's right. This was her life. That was her was job. Was anger yeah. at, at at racism and, and racial violence. But we don't, one of the reasons that we are still able to write off women's anger so mm-hmm. easily in a pop in a popular narrative mm-hmm. as hysterical, marginal, yeah. unstable is because we haven't ever gone back and appreciated the ways in which angry women have shaped our right. rules. Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. She was pissed. She was pissed. You know who else was pissed? <laughs> but here's a good example of like the way. Right. We- Rosa Parks is always seen as this sort of saintly. It's true. But think do- gentle. What do you know about Abigail Adams? She was mad. I read the letters. Okay. <laughs> right. If you read the whole letters, yeah. you know she was not mad. Not mad. Not insane. She but was angry. Angry. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's not probably a coincidence that mad works in both directions. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's a fair women, point. Yeah. When it comes They're to hysterical. women. Right? There's a, right. Oh, so, someone the other day called me. I have to remember. It was one of those hysterical. <laughs> but go ahead. The way that I was taught about Abigail Adams, which is largely through like PBS documentaries, right? Mm-hmm. Is that in the story of the founding, the which of story, course, right. which of course is the story of our founding is like we revere the the fathers. disruptive and chaotic rage of our founding fathers who, you know, and be were like mm-hmm. white men, right? Yeah. <laughs> then and then the Ben Franklin. Right. But 
in the in the storytelling of that, there's always this one line from Ab- Abigail Adams that gets mm-hmm. sort of put on the museum walls or in mm-hmm. the PBS documentaries, which is "Remember the ladies." She writes to her husband John, right? Remember her, la- remember the ladies right. as you make this right. That was the big feminist statement. But if you actually go back and you read Abigail Adams' letter, that same letter, mm-hmm. she uses the same language of revolution that the founders were using. She says, "Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could." Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Tyrants. Mm -hmm. It's the tyrannical rule of Britain that the founders are rebelling against. And then she says, basically, if you don't include women in your vision for this new country, basically purported to be built on liberty and and equality Mm -hmm. and representation, um, we are determined to foment a rebellion. Mm -hmm. She basically in those letters is she she threatens a revolution. Mm -hmm. But that part, those angry parts where she's using the language of revolution around Mm -hmm. women's rights Mm -hmm. in the 1700s. 1970s, we're never taught that part. We right. don't get the no, picture of no. Abigail Adams, who's furious to the point of threatening rebellion and ca- and using the language of of tyrannical rule with regard to gender to relations. Yeah. Right? right? We're not told that. We're no. not told in that same She's era. She's the helpmate. She's the wise helpmate. Right. And we never. I was never told. I didn't know the story of Mumbet, who is an enslaved woman in Massachusetts, <laughs> working in the home of one of the revolutionary politicians, and she hears the language of revolution and and applies it to her own condition, where she is badly physically abused within the home in which she is enslaved in Massachusetts, applies for her freedom, wins her freedom, and her case becomes the basis for the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts in mm-hmm. 1783. So there's an example of a woman whose anger, borrowing from the revolutionary rhetoric sure. in her home, right. leads to the change of a state law that abolishes slavery in that state. But are we ever taught the story of Mumbet, who's later known as Elizabeth Freeman? Mm-hmm. No. We are never taught the history of women's anger as part of what changes the laws. Right. Right. So where are we now? You have the, all these various, and uh, there, there's, there's anger washing across Twitter mm-hmm. there's, uh, and social media. Mm-hmm. There's fake anger rushing across <laughs> it. There's uh, the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of things around gender inequality and racial inequality going on. There's a, there's a president who creates anger mm-hmm. everywhere he and, goes. And who bu- has built his, his own power on anger, the punitive anger of those who have historically felt that they had a grip right. on power that has been challenged by the right. by the less powerful whose anger is, is... And there's, you know, so many writers now, I always say they kiss up and kick down, like mm. to stop the anger from mm-hmm. coming up. Right. You know well, because mean? the anger from the powerful... And this is, jobs on mobs thing is the same thing. Well, this is... So there's a pattern. This is, you know, what I was referring to before is... When the less powerful challenge the ascension or further accrual of power, mm-hmm. this was a pr- the Kavanaugh mm-hmm. thing was a perfect example of this, mm-hmm. right? In fact, the thing that was being threatened mm-hmm. was that Brett Kavanaugh might not be appointed to the most powerful. You know, he right. wasn't even at risk of losing his job as right. a, as a judge. He wasn't at risk of incarceration, losing his liberty, mm-hmm. um, nothing criminal. The question was, would he get this massive promotion where he's going to have the power to determine right. the rights, ability to vote and control your bodies for millions of people for a generation mm-hmm. or more? And the objection to his further accrual of power based on credible accusations that he had abused his power physically and sexually in Mm -hmm. his past. Mm -hmm. 
that was recast by the most powerful in the situation, the president, the party that was invested in his mm-hmm. further accrual of power, as an attack on him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I write in the book about the first time that I saw that pattern happen. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. You right. realize it's happening all around you every day. Right. Was I noticed in 2015 when Freddie Gray was mm-hmm. killed by police in Baltimore. He was taken on a rough ride and died mm-hmm. of his injuries. Yes. And then there were protests in response to his death. And the way the media covered it, I saw it everywhere. The violence started when protesters threw rocks. And that was the first time that, like, that pattern leaped out at me. And I was like, oh, the violence done by the more powerful entity to the less powerful entity is essentially invisible. Because that's just— No, the violence started with the The violence is when there's the disruption to how power is supposed to work by challenging it. Right. And then once you see that and you get that that's how it works, Mm -hmm. right, that the— uh, the alleged assault, physical assault, screaming, holding a woman's, uh, a screaming woman's mouth closed while trying to rip off her clothes while two men jump on her and laugh, that's not the attack in question. The mm-hmm. attack in question is what has happened to Brett Kavanaugh and his family, right? right. As, and that is framed by the president and not particularly challenged by a media that reports right. on him mm-hmm. that then goes with this, like, sort of idea that there's an angry mob. The women who are yelling at the Capitol, mm-hmm. the women who are so angry yes. that they are protesting, women and right. men, their yelling is the only power available to them. This man has just been confirmed to the Supreme Court. Right. The only power they have is to hold a sign and to yell through the vote. Right. And so they are powerless in the situation, but they are cast as the aggressive mob, right. which is the same thing that happened during Me Too. Mm-hmm. It was a witch hunt, right? right? The witch people hunt. who were being aggressed upon were mm-hmm. the men, you know, who women were— Which which they want to dismiss immediately. Like, can't we get this over with? I, yes. The other day I was somewhere, and, he's, and it was someone very powerful, and they said, well, isn't that enough? I'm like, no. No. Not even close. <laughs> All right, we're going to get back in a minute talking more about that and where it leads and, and sort of the impact of uh, social media on it, too, because I think it does create even—it it, it can be a tool and also a, a way to stop people. When we get back, we're talking to Rebecca Traster. She has a fantastic book you should read about anger, women's anger specifically. It's called Good and Mad, the Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
We're here with Rebecca Traster. She's a writer for New York Magazine, and she's the author of a new book called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, which is available now. You couldn't have better timing for this book. Mm, which worst, is really, time, worst, better, time, better timing, worst timing. Worst timing. I know. I hate to say that's right. Good good job. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Everybody's pissed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, things are going downward quickly. So, Me Too. Everyone's like, it's been about a year, right? I think, and it, and it continues. Mm-hmm. The anger continues and everything yes. else. And one of the things I've noticed is everybody's saying, let's stop being angry now. Mm-hmm. And the other day, someone someone was like, what would you advise people? I said, stay angry. Stay mm-hmm. angry. Absolutely. Do not stop. And they're like, oh, don't you want to stop being angry? I'm like, no. 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 No, because it's not fixed. And it's the only tool available right. to get people doing something. Well, the anger becomes – anger propels people into doing all kinds of things. Me Too is one of the expressions of the anger. Mm-hmm. Um, another is the historic number of women and especially women of color running for office. Mm-hmm. Um, you have women whose anger at all of this has prompted them to support some of the right. women running for office. You have women whose anger right. has prompted them to join strikes, whether it's right. the fast food workers striking for higher wages mm-hmm. or against, in the case of McDonald's workers, in response to pervasive sexual assault, mm-hmm. um, uh, sexual harassment, mm-hmm. the teacher strikers of last spring. Mm-hmm. There are a million ways in which the moment at which you stop looking away from the things that will make you enraged mm-hmm. and you start actually permitting yourself to feel the rage right. drives people to do something about that rage. And I think it's one of the one of the mechanical sort of tactical reasons that rage is discouraged in in populations that have been offered so much less power so historically. Calm down. Calm down. Well, let's and because talk. let's talk, but also if you quell the rage, if mm-hmm. you discourage women from expressing it by telling them that if they do, they won't be taken seriously, they'll sound hysterical, they'll sound like children, they'll be threatening, which is particularly true with regard to how women of color color are treated if they express anger. They're turned mm-hmm. into militant threats in the, you know, in the public white imagination. And if you do that and discourage the actual expression of anger, then women wind up isolated and feeling like they're probably crazy or the only ones who feel that way. But if they express the anger and can make themselves heard with one another, they become right. audible and visible to one another, and then they be- can begin to form connections and organize. And that's when you get campaigns, activism, protest movements, mm-hmm. strikes, right? That's when, And that's been true throughout our history. That was true in the labor movement when a, a bunch of young women worked in the Lowell textile mills right. in, in New England in the right. 1830s, and they found founded one of the first labor unions and staged some of the first walkouts that were the beginning of what would become, you know, a century, right. more than a century's worth of a labor movement that changed workplace safety conditions. So Lowell, another, there's Triangle uh, uh, Shirtwaist Factory was another moment of that. Yes, Um, the Atlanta washerwomen strike in mm -hmm. 1881, which Mm -hmm. was um, primarily black women who were washerwomen and very, you know, tortured working conditions, making soap and and things in the hot Atlanta um, struck. Anger, 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 anger. It doesn't seem like it matters. So to a lot of people, like, here you have Me Too, and people get exhausted. They get just absolutely exhausted. By it. You, you know that feeling, yeah, right? Yeah. You mean the, from actually feeling the anger yes, or exactly. participating yes, in it? Yes, yes. And that, to me, is what—it's it, it's the stuff Trump does. He exhausts you it, with, his, it, with his ridiculous statements. And so you were like, which one was it? Right. It's meant to do that. Right. It's, it's meant, meant to exhaust. Although I would also say I've been shocked by how— how long it's gone on. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I do. I, I I see exactly what you're saying in this sense that, you know, being angry all the time can be exhausting. But one mm-hmm. of the things I found writing this book and living well, through I this know, period— I want to know the historical, what happens historically, when, what happens often to— Often people keep going, and right. that's part of what we're looking at. I mean, we right. have to remember that these 
these movements, the civil rights movement between 1955 and 1964 and 65, which is when you have the Voting Rights, the Civil Rights Act, that's more than a decade. And of course, the activism had extended before 1955, too. Those were the two, the Emmett Till's murder and the Montgomery bus boycott. Right. You know, the abolition and suffrage movement sort of in the 1830s, the suffrage movement begins to take root out of women who are involved in the abolition movement. Mm-hmm. Of course, you don't get abolition until the 1860s. So that's, you know, decades ahead. You right. don't get the 19th Amendment, which right. gave some women the right to vote right. until 1920 when it's ratified. And you don't get the Civil Rights Act until 45 years after that. Right. Same this with is gay. yeah right. This is we have the the truth is we feel exhausted after a couple of years. Perhaps mm-hmm. those of us who did swallow that in some way, shape, or form the lie that you know anger was out of place in the contemporary mm-hmm. fixed world. But in fact, we look back at generations of people whose anger drove them through their lives. Propelled them, yeah. And in fact, many generations of people who died before they saw any fruits of their right. energies or labors. But the fact that they gave their lives to those efforts, in fact, led to the forward motion that right. we then you know, made the mistake of taking for granted. <laughs> so how do you look at the current state of affairs around me? I guess Me Too would be the most prominent, but there's other there's other uh, gender inequality. It's, it's, me Too is the sexual harass, the sexual right. part of it, but there's the gender inequality in pay. There's and, the, and the political, and the the political representation. And they're all branches of the same this thing. Is all, I believe this is all yeah. motivated by a lot of the same thing, which is the anger of the underrepresented, the anger of the of the subjugated. And, and and the tax. I was just, you know, I was talking to someone who was, we were talking about this, and they were like, and then this happened. I'm like, do you know it's a tax on you? Right. You're paying a tax mm-hmm. that white men don't pay. Which, like, you carry around a backpack full right. of rocks that you have to carry all the time. And, and you're, you're taxed by systems that right. don't include you in how they work and how they operate, which is mm-hmm. essentially, by the way, again, the complaint of the founders, taxation right. without representation. Right, right, right. right. And um, so, yeah, I see this the one thing that has to happen, and I think we have to come to grips with it, mm-hmm. is that there, there is tremendous backlash. And by the way, the one thing I want to state is that the anger of women isn't always progressive. You also mm-hmm. have women who are angry mm-hmm. in defense of the power structure that's yes. being challenged here. Oh, I mean, yeah. And that's white women, and that has yeah. long been the case throughout our history. Yeah. And their anger is potent in this moment, too. Yeah, and those I are the voices. Say, they drive me the craziest. <laughs> yes. Yes. They drive me, yeah. the, including the fact that my mother is one of them. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know what I mean? We had such fascinating discussions around Kavanaugh. And, and what, what saved it was my son, who was not put up with it, which was, really? yeah, it was Did your great. mother change her mind at all? You know, it was interesting. I think I've told the story. My mom was watching Kavanaugh and mm-hmm. said, oh, he looks good. I think he's good. Mm-hmm. I don't believe her. Like, and I I just, you know, he I, he's truthful and or something, just something happened. And she's not a Trump supporter by mm-hmm. any stretch, but she's, she, she is now, obviously. And my son said, you know, I don't believe that could happen. And my son literally said, last weekend I pulled two men off, two boys off of girls mm-hmm. who were drunk. And that's I, that's his job. I've mm-hmm. given him that job. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, I've, I've instructed him this is his job at parties and stuff like that. And she was like, what? And he goes, it, it happens all the time, like all yeah. the time. And they don't remember it, you know, because they were drunk or something like that. And then her next move was, well, that girl should the girl shouldn't have been drunk. The girl shouldn't have been drunk. And and my son said, you know, when you're drunk, it doesn't mean you want to have sex, mm-hmm. just so you know. Like, oh, and my mom was like, there was nowhere for her to go. And it was great. It was a great, great. I was like literally what a what a thank parenting finished done that like kind of thing that's great but it 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 took him to change her mind not right. me saying are you crazy you've been sexually bothered and, right oh yes i have but but i think her thing was yeah i have but i dealt with it right Dealing with it is right. like one of the things that, I've overcome it right why are you women who've existed within the system made their peace with it and in fact 
benefited from being attached to those who've had power within that system mm-hmm. are motivated in a lot of ways it. or think they that they deserve it. And that's where and, and the the whiteness comes into this because, you know, women benefit from white white women benefit from white supremacy. Right. Um, both themselves individually. Absolutely. And that cuts them off from the experiences of and and alliances with women who do not benefit from white supremacy. Right. Women who are not white. And this is a this is a major dynamic going forward. And those are right. gonna as the anger, the progressive coalition, driven in part by the anger of women, some of them who've been angry for their whole lives and mm-hmm. some of whom are newly angry, mm-hmm. is going to be met with what was already in place, which was the punitive anger of a power structure challenge. That mm-hmm. is, that's the Donald Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. That is, those are the call, that's birtherism. That is the, that's the call to open racism, misogyny, xenophobia, that is the wall, the Mexicans are rapists, the calls to, to hurt journalists that we're seeing being borne out in Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, bombs are being sent, you know, that mm-hmm. violence is being done and that that's not new. This is what mass mass shooters have been operating from some of this mm-hmm. violence for a long time. If you look at the overlap, it's it's anger at women who won't date them, anger right. at women right. who won't, you know, fold their clothes or, mm-hmm. who ch- you know, that has already been for a long time the motivation of so much violence in this country mm-hmm. is fury at the disruptions in power um, right. that mean that certain kinds of people who historically have felt that they had a certain entitlement to power no longer feel like yeah. they have that I, same I think grip. the waking up of uh, that group of people, it's, in, it's interesting. You have to have had things done upon you to understand it, right? Now, I'm a white woman, but I'm a gay woman, mm-hmm. and I remember that. Like, I was through the period when it was very dangerous, right. you know? Right. And so I have some sense of not getting, you know what I mean? Like, right. And then as you move down the stack— or up the stack, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned, you get more. You had more and more of that, so you understand it. But as you move up, you don't even. It's, you've never been acted upon. Well, it's how the sense that being acted upon could mean somebody uh, questioning your appointment to the Supreme Court, right? As somehow a, a form of, of violent and aggression. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, compared in the context to the act of having been held down at a party mm-hmm. and had your clothes ripped off right. and a, a hand put over your mouth and felt like you were going to be killed, right? Mm-hmm. Those are—and the idea that for some people in power, that former thing, that again, you know, that injustice mm-hmm. of having a massive promotion in power, the further accrual of power halted or questioned, mm-hmm. could be viewed as a kind of so mob act of is aggression. Is that a neck—is that— isn't the end to the Me Too, but is that the rear guard action, right, against it? Yeah, that's, but that's, and it's it's not, it, 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 it will be a forever think, clash, right? Right. And in terms of, I don't see any of this ending in our lifetimes. I don't mm-hmm. think it should. I don't mm-hmm. think this is, this has been centuries behind us and it's centuries ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And the aberration and the error was in not being mad all the time, being, right. being somehow <laughs> convinced that we didn't have anything to be mad about. Right. And of course, once again, that's an affliction and a conviction that was held only by those who had the power and the insulation sure. to, to trick themselves into thinking there wasn't anything to be mad about. And the thing that we have to come to grips with now, and this is, I, I find this especially, you know, as there's been talk lead up to the midterms and the midterms, whatever happens in the Mm. midterms, you know, whatever happens in 2020, this is is not fixed with an election. This is an ongoing process. Well, we try to use those as our things in the sand, right? Right. They're crucial. They're absolutely crucial. And I don't want to take away from that. Just like the removal of extremely bad and violent men from positions of enormous power 
that's a crucial step is not yeah. having Harvey Weinstein in the position to or rape women or less Moonves, yeah. Lo- not only to rape women, but to shape our culture. But it is a trick to suggest, and this is part of like the easy part. Mm-hmm. In in so many ways, it'd be so much easier to mm-hmm. think of this as a story about individual bad people mm-hmm. and individual politicians, right? And that if we can just get rid of Donald Trump or just get rid of Harvey Weinstein or Les Moonves, mm-hmm. we'll solve the problem. When the real project ahead of us mm-hmm. is remaking the entire system. Mm-hmm. And that is a project that will extend well beyond our lifetimes, but to which we must all commit. Are, are you hopeful when you see this? In the very long term, mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful. Mm-hmm. In the well, if our planet doesn't burn. I mean, that's right, really yeah. the place oh, where that. the hope like yeah. <laughs> hits a snag yeah. because we have a limited something that has not been true or that we hadn't known was true in earlier periods during which people died um, mm-hmm. in this in inversions, iterations of this fight. Mm-hmm. We have a timer on us right now mm-hmm. that I think, I mean, that's where I can say that in the long term, I'm extremely hopeful, mm-hmm. but I'm talking the long term, you know, a century long term. The short term, it's going to be really wow. horrible mm-hmm. and people are going to lose and suffer and die mm-hmm. and go to jail. And this is our short-term future. And I think we need to wrap our heads around it, you right. know. But And then this other factor, which is can we wrest enough control to try to stave off our natural destruction mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. unnatural, dis- man-made right. destruction? Right. And do you— um all right, we're bringing climate change into this. So, right, well, I just, I just, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like there when I say, do I have long-term hope? Yes, yes, theoretically, if we survive. So, what has to change? Let's finish up talking about what has to change. Leaving aside climate change, I get that. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. Let's just leave it aside for a moment. <laughs> right. What has to change in the system right now? Besides uh, pe- removing people from power right. that are the obvious abusers. Right. I. It's fascinating because I, someone who was, uh, was talking to someone, and they were talking about a well-known person who's gotten whacked and gotten lost their power and they're like do they really have to lose everything and i said yes they do mm-hmm. they really do and they're like can't they come back and i said no they can't yeah. and they're like well i'm like no they can't mm-hmm. they do not get in and what was interesting about one of these people uh they were getting into something that i had some influence over mm-hmm. uh, or i didn't i was able to call the people who had influence mm-hmm. And they were trying to get into something, and I called them, and I said, if you do this, I'm going to make sure they know that you let this happen. Mm. And I threatened them. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally yeah. threatened powerful people, and I said, I will make your life a living hell. Mm. And they're like, Carrot. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. just I'm just warning you, if you don't do something about it, and you allow this to happen. And it was really interesting. It was a really interesting thing that I, I never had done that, which was mm. interesting. You know that what I mean? interesting. It you was. were mad. I was mad. Yeah. I was mad. So where, what do people— do now if with all this you know I, I don't think the anger is not focused but it it feels well, it, a little, it, it goes in lots of different directions right, exactly. depending on what brought you into it right. and what you've learned since you've gotten here right. right but so there are so many projects ahead of us one of them I think is about it's not just removing the individual bad guys. It's about rethinking who has power within institutions and what mm-hmm. kinds of policies are in place that mm-hmm. that protect certain kinds of people and protect their power and add to it. So it's about you know, truly things that can seem 
unrelated, but like paid leave programs, subsidized daycare, this stuff that happens in an electoral or policy realm that determine, that contribute to who kinds, who has what kinds of opportunities within the public sphere, right? You can't do as well because you have to go home with the kids. To that end, it's a representational question within politics. And that means not just women, because we know that there are women and people of color who legislate on a conservative side too. Mm -hmm. It is about, but there also is a fundamental representational change that needs to happen. In this country is governed by more than seventy five percent, you know, white men, and so oh, I it's, that was just Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, it's it's actually that. Like, I the, love I love a group of people. Consistent. You know, I, I have this friend, uh, this VC, who's a conservative, who drives me up a wall and back down and again. But he said, Carol, what about people who? talk about women's rights and then take money from Saudi Arabia. Mm. Why, why do I have to listen to them? What about people who say black lives matter and then they have no diversity? And I had to say he had a point. Like, right. No, it's a point. This is, we actually, that's the, that's the point is like we can have the individual instances of fury, but we have to engage policy. I mean, and these are things like raising wages, mm-hmm. um, you know, federal jobs guarantees, UBI, stuff that seems unthinkable right now because we're in this moment of incredibly right, incredible right-wing contraction. Mm-hmm. But this is the stuff that's on the table or should be on the table, especially as the Democratic Party moves left, mm-hmm. which I hope that it is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be doing sort of from the ground up with like local and, and statewide candidates yeah. actually moving the body of the party. Right. Because a lot of this is about changing individuals, but it's about changing rules and laws and the system that right. gives people power. And so there are a million different directions, you know, when you're talking about criminal justice reform, reinstating voting rights for for felons, you know, or, you know, all this kind of remaking. And it's the thing is, we have to think about these things in the very moment that the that the court, and it's not an accident that this is happening at the same moment, that the court is now with Brett Kavanaugh on it. And this was always what was on the table when we elected Donald Trump and not Hillary Clinton, that the court will now have the power to depress the ability to make these kinds of changes, right? Mm-hmm. To further gut things like affirmative action, collective bargaining rights, um, uh, uh, reproductive rights, perhaps access to contraception itself, voting rights. You know, they've already gutted the Voting Rights Act, and that's enabling this kind of voter suppression all around the country. We are in a fight where the top powers are in a position to strangle the ability to resist and insist on not just a reinstatement of the rights that were there, but an expansion of the kind of safety nets and policies. Right. And it's because we're on this cusp, right? Where where there is, I think, has been building a kind of understanding that we do have to remake the very fabric, the economic and political and representational structures on which this Mm -hmm. country is built. That is why we're in this moment where the top power in its kind of death throes. Mm-hmm. But but just because it's death throes shouldn't be comforting because dead. they have the ability yep, um, to enforce our inability to enact the changes that I think increasing people, so numbers are, of people know th- we need th- to let make. Let me ask you, I've got to finish up, but yeah. are you hopeful? Yes. I have to be hopeful because hope, if you're not hopeful, then you're not going to fight and there's nothing for us to do but fight. Right. And if you had to say what people could do right now, besides read your book, um, <laughs> what do you imagine? Stay angry. Stay angry. Don't stop looking at the inequities in the world. Like, form networks. The most important thing, because everybody's driven in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like, maybe it's making changes within, you know, your own Mm -hmm. workplace. Maybe it's running for office. Maybe it's supporting candidates. Maybe it's striking. Maybe it's going to protest and yell. All these forms of anger driving you into civic engagement, getting an education about the history Mm -hmm. of social change in this country, which most of us, like me, never had. We have no historical memory. And getting that education, I think, is absolutely key. Go to the library. Go, um, you know, read the, the people who 
who are writing about the history of this mm-hmm. because you'll find so much that is resonant and that will help guide you forward. Labor movements, civil rights movements, all of it. So everybody's going to be going in a different direction depending on their talents, their impulses, whatever. Mm-hmm. I would say that a universal thing to do is find other people who share your anger yep. because it's the formation of networks and potential coalitions. And, and those coalitions are complicated. We repeat the inequities. We repeat the racial and class and gendered inequities. Every social movement in, the, in this country's history has been riddled with sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia. So within those coalitions, we also have to listen to the anger of the people yes. we're trying to form alliances with and take it in and, and really hear it as instructive, including including if some of it is at us, you know, but form those coalitions and those networks because this is going to be a lifelong project, a lifelong struggle. And you need, here's the solution to exhaustion is you become part of a group and a network where when you need to take care of yourself, you can and right. know that you are connected to people who are doing the work. And then you spell those people mm-hmm. when they need to, to sort of take a break and, and take care of themselves. And that's the solution. It's the exhaustion comes when we're, when we're on our own and feeling alone and driven into this, into this, right. Fury, yes, 100%. and then, and then there's have no one to, to, to rely on for support absolutely. or help. Yep, absolutely, which women do very so, well. So form networks, listen to other people, mm-hmm. be curious about what they're angry about, and then try to work with the people who you share common goals and frustrations mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. I had this encounter on a plane the other day. about this, I was reading the New York Times. I had a story in it, and this woman in the print publication, and this woman sitting next to you, I was flying to the Midwest, and she said, ugh, fake news. I was reading the New York Times. Mm-hmm. At those Hondurans, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. coming in a caravan. And I said, I turned to her, I said, when in your life did Honduran immigrants ever hurt you? I'm just curious. Just when did an immigrant ever bother you? Well, never. And I said, so why are you frightened of them? And we had this fascinating conversation. It was really interesting. And what I was trying to do was not necessarily get to compromise or com- but mm-hmm. common ground, not compromise, because I didn't back off. I'm like, you're terrified and scared of something you shouldn't be terrified or scared of, and it's sad that you're being manipulated. I was super in her face about that, and it was a really fascinating discussion because we got to commonality, and I was like, you can't name one time you've ever been under siege by uh, an immigrant. And it was really interesting. It was really interesting, and it was I found it fa- a fascinating thing. Did she react with anger? Initially. Yeah. And then not. Hmm. And it was, yes, 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 yeah. but that was okay. Yeah. But I didn't back down. It was really—I thought about it. I was thinking, should I continue the anger and did. Yeah, I would say, you know, conversations, communication is key. Yeah. Which is not the same thing as saying go rage everywhere because there are real costs and censure and punishment inflicted on people um, who show rage in certain certain contexts, especially women and especially women of color. Mm -hmm. But listen for other people's rage and Mm -hmm. and, and talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, I had I have lots of relatives. Well, I'm not a racist. I'm like, no, you are. <laughs> no, that's what I do. They're like, yeah. I'm not a racist. I'm like, no, you are. Yeah. Like, I'm right. not gonna. You're not getting off on right. this one. It's a really, it's a really interesting time. It is a, it's a, but it's always been here, yeah. right? As you said. Anyway, I urge everyone to read Rebecca's fantastic book that she has written about uh, rage. And uh, I don't want to use the word rage, right? I don't want to. You can use the word rage. Anger. Anger. Anyway, her book is called "Good and Mad: The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger." It is revolutionary, and it will be. We'll see. We'll see. 
how it ends, how the story ends. Well, we're going to burn up, apparently. We're, we're not going to see how the story ends because <laughs> no, it will extend we will long burn after up. we're gone. How sad, Rebecca. Anyway, yeah. this is, it was great talking to you. I'm one of your biggest fans. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kara. Thanks for everyone for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. Recode Decode has been nominated for the Best Science and Tech Podcast in the inaugural iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. We'd really appreciate if you voted for us. You can cast up to five votes for Recode Decode every day at iHeart.com slash podcast awards. Voting ends on uh, January 6th. Uh, Rebecca, where can you be reached? At Rebecca Tracer, right? At RebeccaTracer.com. Yeah. And at New York Magazine, New York where Magazine, I publish my you can journalism. You do your writing, my, typing, page, my, typing words on a page. That's, yes, where you that's do my that. day job. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now that you're done with this, are you working on another book? What's your other book? Oh, God, not yet. Okay. No. All right. You're going to just stay mad with this uh, one. Yeah. All right. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcast, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.